and welcome to the COTS Podcast. My name is Jordan Wozniak. And I am Gavin Michael. And today's episode is episode zero about the Kotsk Podcast. So, Gavin, we've already recorded a couple of episodes, so we're doing this a little bit out of order, but I thought it might be useful for us to uh, introduce ourselves to our listeners and uh, tell everybody a little bit about how this podcast started and what it's all about. So maybe instead of talking about you, I'd like you to talk about you and uh, your background and your blog, the Kotsk blog, which you've had going for a while, and, uh, and you know, how you got interested in this subject. Well, the truth is, Jordan, I'm actually more interested in uh, hearing about you. But uh, if <laughs> seeing you ask the question, once you ask, let, let me tell you. I'm uh, Gavin Michael. I'm a South African. In case you're wondering where my strange accent, somewhere between a bad Australian accent and an even worse British accent comes from. I was born in Pretoria. I went to school in um, Pretoria. I went to a non-Jewish school, non-Jewish high school. Of course, I went to Cheda. I don't come from a religious family, but on my bar mitzvah, I drove to Shul on Shabbos morning, and my parents had planned a very, very fancy luncheon. We lived quite far from the Shul, about a two-hour walk from the Shul, so of course we uh, drove, drove to Shul. And um, while I was reading my bar mitzvah portion, I had this image. I looked up at the Aaron HaKodesh and I decided that I wanted to keep Shabbos and I was going to be from. I, I'd always wanted to, to be from, but I decided that's it, I'm going to become from. And I walked home and kept all the guests waiting at uh, my bar mitzvah. They weren't very happy with me, but at least I was able to keep um, Shabbos. My parents tell me that when I turned two on my second birthday with two candles, I went to fetch my yarmulke because I thought that it was um, uh, Shabbos. <laughs> but anyway, um, after school, I decided that I wanted to go to yeshiva. I was very influenced by a certain rabbi in Johannesburg, Rabbi Norman Bernard, who was a great mentor to me. And I wanted to be exactly like him, and uh, off I went to Yeshiva, I got influenced by Chabad, Chabad was very new in South Africa at the time, I'd started an early Chabad camp, in fact it was the first Chabad camp in South Africa, I called it Chayelei Chabad, and it took place in Cape Town, the very scenic Cape Town, our first trip was climbing Table Mountain in, in Cape Town mm -hmm. in an old school bus. Uh, took a couple of kids in an old school bus, and then we climbed up uh, uh, Table Mountain. And after school, I, I should actually mention that I had an English teacher at school. His name was Mr. Ashton, an English teacher. He was from England. I went to the equivalent of an English public school. And he got me fascinated by philosophy and by um, um, the English literature and writing, and he opened my mind. He taught me how to think. And uh, if if he were still alive today, which I know he's not, I would love to thank him, because in a class of about thirty non-Jews and just two Jews, he 
got me want he got me to actually want to become a rabbi he got me interested in theology and in thinking and in philosophy so anyway off i went to yeshiva i went to kfar chabad in um, israel for quite some time after that i progressed to 770 in new york I spent a year or two in uh, 770, and I was fortunate enough to get smicha from Rabbi Pinchas Hirschsprung in Montreal. So I remember traveling four times from New York to Montreal to be tested by Rabbi Hirschsprung. Hopefully not in the winter. In the winter, in the spring, yes. So I got to see all the various seasons. I remember the Laval River in uh, freezing cold winter. Mm-hmm. I remember the snow of Montreal very, very fondly, and I remember how, how much Montreal rem- reminded me of Johannesburg in in South Africa. Interesting. Um, I loved my time in New York, and I loved my time with Rabbi Hirschsprung. He was the most amazing man. I came back to South Africa. I got married, and uh, there was conscription in those days, and I was forced to go into the army. For two years, immediately after I'd gotten married, I became a chaplain in the army, a Jewish chaplain, one of the few rabbis in the army, and I got sent to the border of what was then Southwest Africa and Angola. I spent about six months in um, Angola. I even saw action on the border. I was the only chaplain in the, his 16-year uh, history of the uh, Bush War to have seen um, action hmm. and um, I received a medal from the Minister of Defense at, at that time Re- remember people often think that it was an apartheid army um, it was an army at, at that stage that was fighting communism, we, we were fighting the Cubans and we were fighting the Russians and during my time, at least, there was absolutely no apartheid in the um, army. There were black units. There were um, black and, and uh, uh, um, Indian soldiers. And um, we, we were not allowed to practice any, any form of discrimination whatsoever in, in the army during those, those particular times. Anyway, after that, I became a rabbi of a fairly large community in Johannesburg, I survived that for 10 years, Mm -hmm. and quite frankly, I had enough of committees and being told what to speak about in shul. In those days, I was still very interested in Hasidus. I became interested uh, in in, in, uh, Breslev Hasidus as well, and um, I was told by my committee that if I want to continue being the rabbi, I must speak only on the parsha and not on um, Hasidus or, or Jewish mysticism. And eventually, after 10 years, I had enough and I said, thank you very much. And I started my own shul, um, which has been running and still runs today. It's been running now for 25 years. And um, with time, I became interested in um, Kotsk. Kotska Hasidus, and I discovered that 
Kotzke Hasidus is a misnomer because the Kotzke Rebbe wasn't really interested in Hasidus. He didn't like Hasidus and he didn't like mysticism. He had come from a strong, very, very Chagat uh, um, uh, a background as opposed to Chabad background, a very uh, um, strong emotional, mystical background with the Choyzer of Lublin and various other peoples and the Yida Kodosh. And he rebelled against that type of um, Hasidism. And he spoke, about, he spoke about independence of thought. And for me, this was the first time in about 30 years after having been from and religious and a rabbi for 20-odd years already. It was the first time that I came across a notion of, of, of independent thought and a notion of, of, of truth, which is uh, something that the Kotzke Rebbe stood for, and also the idea of speaking without fear, speaking truth to power without fear. The Kotzke Rebbe spoke about a technique of almost intimidation that is used very often by the Jewish religious community. And one needs to stand up to that fearlessly mm -hmm. and to speak one's mind and to speak the truth. So the Kotzke Rebbe started me off on the most wonderful, wonderful journey of explore, exploration. And in a sense, I, I, I became a Balteshuva again, again, and I, I relearned a very different kind of uh, Judaism. And then I became interested in academic Judaism. I liked the writings of Nossen Slifkin, Rabbi Nossen Slifkin, for example. I'd never, ever come across that in my entire life. I'd never come across people like Avram ben Arambam. I never even knew that he existed. I never knew that there were views like the Rambam. I never knew that um, the notion of angels was not something that was unanimous, unanimously accepted by some of the early Jewish thinkers. I, I, I took it as part of the course. I never knew that um, the notion of Hashkocha Pratis was something that was very, very much challenged and very cleverly defined by the Rambam, very different to the model that was presented by the Baal Shem Tov, which actually was a chiddush of the Baal Shem Tov, that a leaf doesn't fall off a tree without it being ordained so by Shemaim. So I found a, a very different Judaism, but I found a Judaism perhaps more deeply based in sources, in ancient sources, in sources of the early Rishonim and um, uh, even the Goenim, probably more deeply rooted in sources than the Judaism that I had experienced in Yeshiva and in the basic you know, religious Jewish world that I'd grown, grown up in and was very, very familiar with and had, had worked in for um, so long. And um, I, I discovered the uh, notion of, of a very pure faith that was presented by people like the Rambam, something that made a very deep impression upon me was 
that when the mystics are confronted by God, they wax lyrical. They fill volumes describing who God is, how God came about, what aspects of God flourish at what times, how you can manipulate various parts of God by doing things. I got to understand that there was a word theosophy and the word theurgy. Theosophy is the study of mysticism. Theurgy is a manipulation of that uh, theosophy of mysticism where you try and manipulate it for your own benefit, which involves a degree of magic or theurgy. I'd never ever known that it could be a Judaism that was purer and that when the rationalists are confronted by God, they remain silent. They remain silent in a very, very deep spiritual awe of God being an unknowable being, but without any attempt at trying to explain anything so that one is left in a mystery. When one confronts God, one goes silent. The rationalists go silent. The Rambam says that the best form of prayer is silence in all. It's a very deep spiritual rationalism. It's not an anti-mysticism or an anti-spiritualism. It's a spiritual rationalism. I never knew before that there was an option for a rationalist approach to Judaism. I believe that there was the mystical approach, the Kabbalistic approach. And the fact is that it wasn't only the Hasidim who adopted a mystical approach to Judaism, because even the Misnagdim and even the uh, Litvisha world as well adopted the basic ethos, ethos of a mystical approach. Um, so without necessarily subscribing to technical Hasidic sources, their general approach would have been pretty much a mystical approach. And when I discovered that there were rationalists and mystics in Jewish history, and when I discovered that there were Maimonidean controversies within Jewish history, three Maimonidean controversies going on for more than a decade after the Rambam, my eyes opened up when I discovered that there were attempts to actually um, wean the Jewish people off the rationalism of the Rambam and bring in the newer mysticism, which was actually a result of the rationalism of the Rambam and had come subsequent to the Rambam because the Zohar was only published around about um, 1280 and the Rambam died in 1204. Mm -hmm. So the roots of Jewish rationalism go a lot deeper than the roots of, of Jewish mysticism. These were all things I'd never known before. And for me, this was the most wonderful, wonderful journey of discovery. And ever since then, I haven't stopped reading and I haven't stopped studying. And this is one of the reasons why I'm so fascinated by Jewish history. I'm, I'm so fascinated to see how, how various movements have almost con constructed a, 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 a path, a path to, to dominance at the exclusion of 
other movements so that a Jew born in today's world is unaware of the fact that we come from a rich tradition of rationalists and mystics and we don't just come from a tradition of, of, of mystics. And I find that when I speak to people who've been from for decades, some of my contemporaries who were at Yeshiva with me, I find that they are totally unaware of the discoveries that uh, I have made as a result of, 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 of being ma made aware of, of this distinction between rationalist Judaism and mystical Judaism and seeing how the Hashkoffers um, uh, 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 sort of coalesced in, into two very, very distinct movements, one of which, the rationalist one, has been pushed basically to extinction. The saying goes, Shivim Panim La Torah, right? There are 70 faces, 70 sides to Torah, and like use that as a placeholder for uh, Jewish thought. And uh, that there's 70 sides to it, 70 different ways of looking at it, many, many different ways of looking at it. And uh, perhaps it's the case that in many parts of the Jewish world, only one or two of those faces are actually being looked at. Correct. I, I mean, I couldn't agree with you more. Um, there's a one size fits all. And what, what bothers me is that if that size doesn't fit you, you have to leave orthodoxy and you have to go somewhere else. And I maintain that one can remain within orthodoxy, within central orthodoxy, and um, still espouse these, these views while remaining steadfastly within the camp. And I position myself steadfastly within the orthodox camp and within the camp of central orthodoxy. Now, your blog, Gavin, the Kotsk blog, which is the inspiration for this podcast series, you've been writing that for quite a number of years, right? Since 2013 or 14. How did that start? Yes. Well, I started originally just wanting to write about Kotsk and Kotsk Vorts, which I did. If you look at some of the back catalog, some of the early um, articles were very, very short artic articles. I tried to collect all the books that I could. Remember, the Kotsuka didn't write any books. His, his students wrote, wrote, wrote um, um, books, and they recorded some of his sayings. And I collected a quite, quite, a, quite a nice library, uh, a nice Hebrew library of some of his um, works. And I started reading through them, and I, I, I was astounded by some of the short um, aphorisms of the, of the Kotsuka Rebbe that were so, so so deep and so so meaningful. Um, and I started writing about that. But in all of my articles, I tried to relate it to something that was happening within the contemporary world. Mm -hmm. And from, from that, um, actually didn't get much readership, funny enough, which didn't bother me because I was writing more for myself. And I then started researching Jewish history again with the intention of uncovering Hashkafic history, Jewish worldview. So I would find rabbis whose names I'd never heard of, like uh, Leon of Modena, Rabbi Del Medigo, names I'd never ever heard of, names I couldn't pronounce. 
mm-hmm. um, even relatively in, in, in relatively recent times, Rabbi um, Yitzchak Nissenbaum, I actually just wrote a blog on him this week, never heard of him before, yet he had the most amazing theology on work, how, how work is, 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 is part of, of, of Judaism, and that a Judaism where you just sit and learn is a lopsided Judaism because you don't have that component of physical labor and physical work. Um, so the, these, again, for, for me, were, were, were brand new discoveries which I'd never, ever been exposed to by the mainstream yeshiva education that I had received. And this is what, what gave me such enthusiasm and such, such uh, an, an, an interest in exploring different people, different stages within Jewish history. The Jews of Arabia, fascinating story. It, it seems as if the largest Jewish community ever was in Arabia for a huge amount of time. And we lived in cities called uh, 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 um, uh, Kaiba. Uh, fascinating stories, false messiahs. Again, fascinating stories. Great rabbis with amazing philosophies, amazing theologies, amazing beliefs. How there's not just 13 principles of faith. Even according to the Rambam, there's a view that he's, that the first eight of his 13 principles, he wrote um, for himself, and the last five he gave over to the masses. But there's not only 13 principles. The Albo had three principles. There were other rabbis who had 26 principles and others who had 18 principles, others whose names I've never heard of before, giving Ikarim and principles and Anafim and branches. So to be a Jew, what do you have to believe in? Is it 13? Is it three? Is it maybe just one? And are there other uh, 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 principles of belief and sin and uh, and 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 scenery to it, are they make or break? Do you have to believe in them? Do you not have to believe in them? These for me were fascinating, fascinating discoveries. Another thing is, does God have a body? Would you believe? I mean, I can't even believe that I'm asking this this question. Does God have a body? Everybody knows God doesn't have a body, but there is a view that the rabbis of northern France and Germany in the time of the Ballet Hatosfot, uh, there's, there's a, um, a quotation, Rov Chachmei Tsarfat Makshimim Heim. The majority of the rabbis of northern France were corporealists. In mm. other words, they believed that God had some form of body. And that, that is fascinating. It's absolutely fascinating. I've written a couple of articles about that. I've explored that looking through the various sources. And these aren't just made up. These are well-rooted, well-documented. The Rambam was against that. Uh, um, And other people, some of the mystics were defending that notion to some degree. And I've even had some of my colleagues turn around to me and say to me, where did you come up with this nonsense that God has a body? And then I tell them there's a book called Shi'ur Koma, which they've never heard of before. But there's a vast literature, which if, if you actually study it, you can see that these were beliefs that Jews had. 
at various stages in our history and not many people are aware of this wealth of, of information, of this fascination of, of this thing that we call um, um, Judaism. And that's what motivates me. And now 270 some blog posts later, you've amassed this, uh, I would call it a treasure trove of, uh, of an archive of uh, summaries of, of overviews of different topics in Jewish history, in Hashkafa, uh, the history of liturgy, the history of Jewish thought, and uh, which is a tremendous resource for those of us like me who are, uh, who are not you know, scholars of Judaism, uh, but who are interested in it. And, uh, and you've been publishing on the Kotsk blog now for about six years. And I think that I found your blog, I can't remember exactly how, but probably also through Natan Slifkin's website. And um, for me, a big, I'm, I'm not Orthodox. I, I'm, I'm a traditionally minded guy, but I'm not Orthodox. My Jewish education was um, primarily through after school type cheder things, Sunday mornings. And uh, later on in my adulthood, I filled in a lot of the gaps and uh, tried to get myself more educated. Over the years, I developed a fascination in, with Jewish history. And when the whole blog movement became popular, I started to, uh, to read more about what was going on in the contemporary Orthodox world. I think that that's what led me to uh, Natan Slifkin's writings and also to this whole episode in which uh, the books that he had written uh, were banned um, by some elements of the Orthodox rabbinate in Israel, and I think that in many other places in the world, it was went along with. And um, for many of us who get a lot of our Jewish education through reading content on the internet, for better or worse, that was an eye-opener, as I'm sure maybe it was for you too, Gavin, to see how um, these, a big part of his writings were demonstrating how these were ideas that were um, they were not radical ideas in the sense that they were extremely well precedented within uh, undeniably orthodox writings and under not undeniably orthodox people, but somehow the presentation of it or bringing it to light was seen as uh, a source of controversy and somehow unacceptable in certain quarters. And for me, that was uh, really interesting. And it, it, it uh, got me reading more about this type of thing. Uh, eventually, uh, probably about six or seven months ago, found my way to your blog and uh, started reading through your back catalog and uh, and was fascinated by just the huge variety of different topics that you cover in your writings and the insights on, again, as you mentioned, figures in Jewish history, figures in Jewish thought and in Jewish literature that we really never hear about. They're not part of the mainstream. In their era, I'm sure they were. In their local areas at the time that they lived, they were major figures, but um, they they have perspectives that sometimes are surprising to us. Um, and then, you know, taking a step back, looking at you know why are these surprising to us? Why do we find some of these some of these ideas surprising uh, to hear them from uh, people who lived many hundreds, sometimes thousands of years in the past? And so, for me, that's the fascination. This kind of this sort of a combination of Jewish sociological history and, you know, academic Judaism uh, and to see how it all intersects and in what ways does it influence the modern Jewish world or not influence the modern Jewish world? 
you know, you made such a valid point um, when you said that these would have been mainstream in their day. And that's exactly the point. These views were mainstream at some stage in Jewish history. And unfortunately, to a large extent, I think one can say, and I think one must say, that Judaism has been hijacked by certain factions. And by showing that there are other options, Judaism has options, um, one could then allow a lot more people to remain within the framework of, of Judaism instead of feeling that they need to go um, somewhere else. And this is something that I've, I've, I've found very meaningful for me. And as I say, I do this writing for me because I'm so interested in it. And I spend about 30 hours of, of research on, on each blog right now. Well, that's, that's a considerable effort. And we're all, uh, we're all the richer for it, the, the rest of us out in the, out in the wider world reading, reading your content. And so maybe now we can talk a little bit about what this podcast is. So uh, after reading your blog for a while, I approached you virtually because we live almost on other sides, opposite sides of the globe. I approached you yeah. about the idea of, uh, of um, putting together a podcast series because there's a lot of Jewish podcasts out there. Many of them are really excellent. But the, the range of subject matter that you cover in your blog is really broad. It covers... Uh, as you mentioned, things that are um, things that seem surprising to people, things, rabbis, teachers, scholars, writings, books, philosophies that are outside of the mainstream of modern Judaism, but not outside of the mainstream of historical Judaism in other places. And it, it's it, there are stories that deserve to be told and that deserve to be spread. And so if I can say our aim with this podcast series is to, uh, you know, convert some of your writings, as it were, into a audio form that people can listen to and uh, learn about some of these topics. And we'll be exploring some of the subjects that you've covered in your blog over the years. And uh, we we look forward to exploring all of these topics and hearing from our listeners. And uh, if you enjoy this podcast series, please let us know. You can uh, email Gavin through the Kotsk blog uh, main website, which is kotzkblog.com, K-O-T-Z-K-B-L-O-G.com. And uh, we would love to hear your thoughts about this podcast series. And uh, if you enjoy it, please let your friends know. Uh, please leave us a rating or a review on the website from which you've downloaded or from which you've subscribed to this uh, podcast series. We're going to aim to get it up on all of the common uh, podcast hosting websites. And, uh, and if you have any further suggestions, please let us know. And we would love to hear from anyone listening. Oh, thanks, Jordan.